This episode is brought to you by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible, the only study Bible built on biblical theology. Marvel at the big story and savor every detail. Learn more at www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com. Hey, brother, do you still believe in one another? Hey. Welcome to episode 107 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasts. Sky comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? You know, little this, little that. Is that, like, cliche enough for you? I think it is. As long as this and that are both podcasting, I think we're set. You know they are. So why don't we just jump into it today? Yeah, let's do it. So we're going to do a little something a little bit different. We're not exactly sure how this is going to work. But Jesse and I have talked it over, and you know we've been blessed with this platform that God has given us and these amazing listeners who uh, listen to what we have to say, and when we ask them to do something, a lot of times they just they just do it, whether that's you know going to a particular website and voting for something or joining Scripture Typer or whatever it is. So um, we wanted to make use of our platform for something a little broader than uh, just podcasting. So we're going to try, um, you know, over a, a course of time to suggest some causes or some ministries that we think you should consider supporting. Um, and full disclosure, this first one is one that I have a personal connection to. So I get a call uh, probably Wednesday from a good friend of mine from uh, seminary who was in my wedding, um, was the first person I met when I got to seminary. Uh, his name is Cecil Dietz. And he first started seminary because he wanted to go into Bible translation. He, he did an internship in college with Pioneer Bible Translators, and he wanted to go to Gordon-Conwell to do a program in biblical languages so he could then go and work on uh, Bible translation. So I get a call from Cecil, and it turns out that he has been hired as the IT director for Pioneer Bible Translators. Um, so he did a little presentation for me um, just to kind of talk about some of the issues in Bible translation. So I don't want to I don't want to make this the whole thing, but he shared with me that there are still 84 projects that by uh, pioneer Bible translators are working on to get the scriptures into uh, the language of people groups that have zero scripture, not a single verse of scripture. So that's 84 different languages out there that the word of God is not accessible to people except through the preaching of the word, which is good, but um, people really need to have the the scripture in their own language for a number of reasons. So we were thinking it would be cool for uh, our listeners to help get him funded. He can't start as the IT director until he gets funded, and he shared with me that he was at about 75%. So uh, once you have uh, fulfilled your obligation to your local church uh, in terms of your regular gifts and offerings, um, if you feel so inclined, you can go to pioneerbible.org slash Cecil Dietz, which is C-I-C-E-L, D-I-E-T-Z. 
uh, and check it out. And there's a picture of him and his family. Um, Cecil and Christina were some of our best friends in, in seminary. And so we're thrilled to see them finally kind of moving on to this next area of their life where um, Cecil's always felt called. So if you feel so inclined that you can help him out with a little bit of funding, whether it's a one-time gift uh, or like a regular donation, that would be amazing. And you can tell him that the Reformed Brotherhood sent you. Right on. I met Cecil at your wedding and he's a good dude. He is a good dude. Yeah. And, and he's, he's got such a passion for this. I mean, I, re- I remember in seminary, it was always, he was always talking about Bible translation, about how, like, how important the work is, how, how kind of remarkable it is, how many people there are, like how many, how much of the world's population still doesn't have the scripture in its own language. I mean, we talk about it when we're talking about translations, you know, we've got hundreds of translations in English and we just take it for granted that if I don't like this translation, I'll just go and check out a different translation. But um, there are people out there that don't have any translation. So if they want the word of God, they have to learn an entirely different language. Um, And as Reformed believers, we're actually confessionally obligated to support the work of Bible translation, right? Our confessions say that the scriptures ought to be translated into the vernacular language of the people that we're ministering to. So in a lot of ways, when we go into like a missionary setting and we try to bring just our language Bible to them, uh, we're actually kind of like working at odds with what we already believe. So I just really think this is a great ministry beyond the fact that Cecil's involved in it. I want to get him funded, but Pioneer Bible, um, Wycliffe, all these different um, Bible translation organizations, which all work very closely with each other. It's just a really important ministry that I think sometimes in the American church, we don't, we don't always have visibility to. And that's why we wanted to bring it up in this particular setting is because this is a work that needs to continue to go forward. And it's something that we just cannot really undervalue or underestimate the power of having the scriptures in your own yeah. language. Yeah, There's, and we've, you and I have talked, talked so much on this cast about just the remarkable and amazing power of the word of God itself, apart right. from even any kind of other teaching, just having the word of God in your hand and being transformed by it because the spirit works through God's word. Yeah. So I'm glad for you to make me aware of this because I, I didn't know that the, uh, Cecil was involved in this, and I think that this is beyond just a noble task. Like you said, this is something that we as Christians are really called to support. Our endeavor should be to get this into every tongue, every yep. language, Absolutely. so that you know Jesus can be proclaimed for for our good and for His glory. Yep. So it's a worthy, more than a worthy cause. Yeah, absolutely. So enough of the housekeeping stuff, Jesse. What's our topic tonight? Well, Tony. I thought we could chat a little bit today about impeccability. Impeccability. What is impeccability? Yeah, because one, it's super fun to say. (laughs) And two, I see this kind of coming out of all kinds of conversations I've been having recently about Christ. So here's how I would define it. Let me throw some stuff out there and and we can start here. So the word impeccability just by itself, it's not like impeccable in like you're impeccably dressed, which... I mean, I can't really see you entirely, but I think you're wearing like a John Owen sweatshirt. Are you? I am wearing a John Owen sweatshirt. Yes. It's, a, it's my favorite sweatshirt. Yes. So that is being impeccably dressed. But what we mean by impeccability in the theological sense is the root of that Latin word is to sin, which is peccare. So the impeccability of Christ, which is the doctrine we want to talk about, is referring to the fact that it was impossible for Christ to sin. So the church has affirmed basically through most of its history that Christ did not sin. And basically, if you were 
a Christian person in orthodoxy, you're going to affirm that. That's not really controversial by itself. But what is a little bit controversial or can be controversial is that Christ could not sin. And that's the right. doctrine of impeccability. And that has really been the standard position from the church that's held basically throughout the centuries. But it is increasingly a minority view among theologians. And I find that interesting. And so I think that the reason why some are pulling away from that is because of two questions that we should discuss to kind of set us up on this topic that are related to each other. And they sound the same, but they're nuanced. And basically the first question is, if Christ could not sin, then in what sense did he really face temptation? And the second question is, if how could temptation be genuine for Christ as Christian theology has traditionally held? So we need to kind of start there because I think you and I are on the same page about the importance of impeccability. But let's just kind of start with, how would you answer those questions? Well, on one level, um, you know, this was a topic that I got hung up on in seminary. So if you were to contact my systematic uh, theology two professor and ask him what the most annoying thing about systematic two was, it would be that Tony would just not let this question go. <laughs> so, and this was the exact same, the exact question that I was trying to get at. And, and ironically, when I reflect on what, what kind of got me hung up on this, it was an orthodox understanding of Christology that got me hung up on this, right. but in the wrong, the wrong direction. So I think what we have to, we have to remember is that, um, there are some things that are just mysterious to us that we can't quite understand how how they work. And a lot of those things kind of crystallize the most in the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And the reason for that is, um, you know, we we have no personal experience with anything in all of creation that is one person or one hypostasis with two natures. Right. So in the, in the incarnation, we have something that is uh, genuinely 100% unique in all of existence. Um, likewise, in, in the Trinity, we have one nature that subsists in or as three persons, which is also unique in all of uh, all of existence. And so those two areas of systematic theology, those two realities, we have to be more ready to put down our mystery card than we would in some other area where we might have some sort of personal um, ex- you know, experiential knowledge of that. None of us have any experience with being two uh, two natures. It just it just doesn't exist. Um, so in a certain sense, we have to we have to understand that we can only go as far as the scriptures go on this. We can't we shouldn't speculate too much beyond that. Um, but I think the answer to those questions is found in understanding the limitations of Christ's human nature. And we've talked at length about this, about how Christ, you know, Jesus wasn't a superhero. It wasn't as though he did miracles um, because he somehow tapped into his divine nature. And sometimes when people ask this question, they sort of rely on the divine nature as though the divine nature is what keeps Christ from sinning. Right. And in a certain sense, that's true. But in another sense, that's not quite the whole story. And so we have to understand that Christ's humanity, Christ according to human nature, was genuinely limited in all of the same ways that we are, except for he did not have a sin nature. And that's really important for this conversation. So when we get to the idea of temptation, we have this tendency to think about temptation from our perspective. Right. Right. There's the temptation that comes from outside, right? I love chocolate. And so if you put a put a chocolate 
uh, cupcake in front of me, there's a temptation for me to eat it because that external thing is a way that, that drives me to want to consume it. But then there's also temptation that arises from within us that comes either just from our natural desires, which may or may not be sinful, but then especially from our sin nature. And so we have to remember that those internal desires that come from our sin nature the difference is that Christ did not have those. But those other kinds of temptations, either from godly internal desires or from external temptations, external things, those things were still genuinely tempting to him. And tempting in the sense here in his will, um, such a way that that he he could have wanted to do, to do those things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. There's a lot that coalesces, I think, in the doctrine of impeccability. And you've yeah. touched on a lot of those things already. I think there would be like a thesis for this conversation. It would be for me that the Bible is still affirming this vibrant notion that the temptations of Christ were real. Right. But at the same time, it substantiates the claim that he could not sin. And it's that that statement that he could not, that is the breaking point for a lot of people. Right. And I think that part of that is because there is this misunderstanding about the human nature and the deity of Christ. And I think the attempt to refute impeccability is by sometimes separating those out, the humanity and the divinity. So the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, like you said, are different in some aspects, but they're also alike in others. So the hunger, like fatigue, thirst, even the death that Jesus experienced, those are going to relate explicitly to his human nature, but they don't implicate his divine nature. Right. So then some people would ask, well, couldn't you just say then that just as Christ got hungry and that did not implicate his deity, that Jesus might sin out of his humanity without implicating his deity? And the answer to that question is no. Right. Because one of the ways in which the humanity and the deity of Christ are alike is that they're both moral in nature, as opposed to hunger, which relates, obviously, could only relate to his humanity because obviously a deity doesn't have a physical nature that can experience hunger. Right. So I, I see, like, do you see some of that too? Like, there's this... Once again, this is one of those places where we can fall even unwittingly into saying something that sounds really good, like, well, I would never say that it was impossible for Jesus to sin because I know that he was tempted, like you were saying, kind of delineating where does that from where did that temptation arise. Right. But some will have this tendency to say, well, he was able to sin out of his humanity. And they're thinking they're protecting the nature of God while allowing him to basically assume and heal, of course, a part of our nature. But what they're actually doing is flipping the whole thing on its head. And that causes all kinds of other theological implications. Yeah. Yeah. So just maybe to frame the conversation, um, lest some people think that this is some strange doctrine that only people on the fringes of Reformed theology deny, um, in terms of like, think that we're making a big deal out of this and nobody really denies impeccability. Right. Because I, I like to think, and maybe I'm off base here, but I like to think that we've done a decent job of communicating Orthodox Christology in our conversations on this show. So I would hope that people who have been listening to us and who are thinking carefully along the lines that we've presented will see the internal logic already. So they may be surprised to hear this quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, I may be wrong, But I think it's wrong to believe that Christ's divine nature made it impossible for his human nature to sin. If that were the case, the temptation, the tests, and his assuming of the responsibility of the first Adam would have all been charades. This position, speaking of saying Christ was packable, this position protects the integrity of the authenticity of the human nature because it was the human nature that carried out the mission of the second Adam on our behalf. It was the human nature uniquely anointed beyond measure by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there are a number of Christological issues with this quote that we'll go into. And, and I want our listeners to, to remember that we love R.C. Sproul. We, we've both been blessed by his ministry. Absolutely. Um, we both were um, sad to hear of his passing and joyful to hear that he's entered into his reward. But Christology was not Dr. Sproul's strong point in any measure. Um, almost every time he spoke about Christology, he tended to use language that leaned toward this sort of Nestorian way of thinking and speaking that overly separates the divine nature from the human nature and treats it as though it's they're, they're persons instead of natures. And we'll, we'll kind of parse out why that is. But the reason that I bring that up is that this is a really important thing for us to talk about because there are a lot of voices in Reformed theology, as Jesse said earlier, not just Reformed theology, but just Christianity as a whole, that are starting to starting to rethink this doctrine of peccability, and it's really important. Yeah, in, and in deference to Dr. Sproul, you can see, just like I was saying, what he's doing there is he's trying to protect. I mean, right. he's not doing anything nefarious per se by bringing forward that opinion. He is trying to reconcile the questions we started with. Well, how is it possible that if, if Jesus could not sin, that he could be legitimately tempted? Right. And so one of the things that's been helpful for me in trying to understand that, trying to understand exactly what infirmities Christ was taking on himself was something I read recently by John Flavel, who, just as a quick aside, is probably like right now, like my favorite Puritan preacher. Cause he like, he was like the man, yeah. like when he was, when he's getting kicked out of like his, his town because of like the change in the, um, like the English ruling party in terms of like basically pushing out all the ministers of the word. I love that he just goes and starts like preaching under the cover of dark in forests. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. He's like the Robin Hood of preachers. Yeah, basically. He, it, he gathers together a band of merry men to preach the gospel. Yeah, it's incredible. This is why we should read the Puritans and why we should understand something about their lives. Because then yeah. when you pick up these works and you're literally reading a sermon that he wrote that was preached somewhere in the deep woods, it just changes everything. But that aside, I love what he does. He makes this wonderful distinction that I've never heard of before. And the infirmities that Christ assumed in taking on flesh of humanity. And he differentiates between personal versus natural. And this is, I think, somewhat relevant to our conversation. So he says that personal infirmities are those which impact like particular persons from particular causes. So for example, like blindness, lameness, deformities, other afflictions. And he goes on to say that it was not necessary that Christ assumed those, and he did not. What Jesus did assume was natural infirmities, such as like hunger, thirst, weariness, sweating, mortality, which though those are not in themselves intrinsically sinful, they are still the effects and consequences of sin. And so that was really helpful because it starts to parse out how we understand what Christ's human nature was undertaking and thereby, I think, leading us to a better understanding of what it means for him to be impeccable. Yeah. Is that like, do you see where I'm going with that? Like kind of like that, that influence? Yeah. And so that, that's um, something that I think we need to remember is um, a lot of times in these conversations, the point is made like, well, the ability to sin is just fundamental to the human nature. Yes, and, exactly. And the reality of, is, of it is, no, it's not. So we, we shouldn't think of the ability to sin as somehow constitutive of the human nature, because if that were the case, then what that means is that Christ is no longer human, um, and that when we enter into our glorification, we will no longer be human, which is actually kind of a Roman Catholic perspective, that that the purpose of salvation is to, su- is to transcend 
the sort of the frail creaturely estate that we were created into and sort of adopt divinity, right? Or the, the Eastern Orthodox version is theosis, where we, we actually sort of push past our creaturely limitations. But in reality, you know, there are kind of three major mysteries in the scriptures. There's obviously more, but the three chief scripture uh, mysteries, if you were to ask me, the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of Adam's first sin. And so Adam was created again in a state that none of us have any analog to. None of us have ever experienced um, a human who does not have a sin nature, right? The disciples experienced that. The people who met Jesus experienced that, but none of us have ever encountered such a person. And so to think about the humanity that Christ assumed, which is the humanity that Adam had prior to the fall, that's not a nature that's affected by the frailties and the um, the fallenness of sin. But in the garden, um, presumably, Adam had to eat. He got tired. He probably had to sleep. Um, you know, there's differing opinions on whether he would have gotten sore after a long day's work. But there were limitations that Adam had that were not a result of sin, but just were a result of his creatureliness. So those are the limitations. Those are the frailties that Christ takes on in the incarnation. Um, he also takes on, to a certain extent, some of the consequences of sin, because the, the confession says that he was made under the law. So part of his estate of humiliation was that he was born in a low condition, made under the law, and under the wrath and curse of God. But he's under the wrath and curse of God because he takes our curse on. So even before the cross, he comes He comes to earth and his incarnation is already an That's important to remember. But what I think, you know, what I think we miss though is that there's still this unity of person. And this unity of person is really what, right. what hedges us and what hedges Christ in terms of impeccability. But before we go on to that, I just want to offer a few speculative answers to the temptation issue. Uh, because it is a real issue, and that's where people most of the time get hung up. Because the the you know right. human nature entails the ability to sin. That argument is really easily overcome, and people people understand the response to that very quickly. But the temptation issue is not yeah. only a stickier theological issue, but also existentially, it's a stickier issue because it does sort of seem like Christ is not able to sympathize with us. Right? If he's not able to be tempted to sin, then how can we say he sympathizes with us, um, which is a major aspect of his, um, of his priesthood? And so there's a couple speculative things that we can offer that have to do with the limitation of Christ's human nature that I would be, um, I would be cautious to stand too firmly on, but they're kind of food for thought. And the first is um, there's a possibility that Christ himself, according to human knowledge— was not 100% certain that he could not sin. And the reason I say that is because when we speak about Christ's human knowledge, Christ has to learn who he is the same way we learn who he is. And that's by studying the scriptures. Now, because he's anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, he has um, a you know, on orders of magnitude, a better understanding of scripture. But there's also still a, a self-awareness that develops throughout his life. And, and different theologians will put, uh, put where that self-awareness comes into its fullness at different points. But I don't know any theologians that would postulate that, you know, um, Jesus as a, as two cells in the womb of Mary was somehow fully aware of who he was and had all, all human knowledge of, of the Bible at that point. Um, and so there's this spectrum of self-awareness. 
I don't necessarily want to go that way, but there are good Orthodox theologians who've, who've suggested something along this lines that I think we can use as sort of a model to think through it, is that the, the answer to this question is found in the limitations of his human nature, not in, um, not in somehow separating his human nature from his divine nature, um, but in the limitations of his human nature and how that, um, how that interplays with his uh, divine nature. So in the temptation situation, he's tempted because he has human needs and human desires. And so he needs to eat bread. He needs to eat. And he was hungry. The scripture makes a point right. to say that after 40 days, he was hungry. Now, it didn't need to say that. We all know that he would have been hungry after 40 days. Right. Biggest right. understatement but it, ever. It says that anyways, to make a point that this is a genuine situation. It's not as though Jesus is you know hovering out in the wilderness like Superman and he doesn't need to eat. He's actually hungry. He feels the pains of right. hunger. Um, so that's that external desire of food that the devil's putting in front of him. He's saying, look, you're hungry. So it, it wouldn't have been sinful for Christ to eat apart from a vow of fasting or something that he may or may not have made. But ha- had the devil actually brought food that he brought from Jerusalem and said, here, here's a sandwich, unless it was somehow violating a commitment he had made, it wouldn't have been sinful for him to eat food under a normal circumstance. But it would have been sinful for him to exercise his divine prerogative or to misuse his um, his miraculous abilities that are granted by the Holy Spirit. It would have been sinful for him to do that. So what we can say is he had a desire to eat, but he never had a desire to violate the Father's will. Right. That's the critical part there because right. the biggest objection to impeccability is this statement that a person who cannot sin cannot be tempted to sin. But to me, that's like saying that because an army cannot be defeated, it cannot be attacked. Exactly. And so there's a big difference there. I like what W.G. Shedd, here's a long quote from him. I can just read it real quick, but I think it's so spot on. It's better than I could say it. On this subject, he writes this, temptability depends upon the constitutional susceptibility, while impeccability depends upon the will. So far as his, that is Jesus' natural susceptibility, both physical and mental, was concerned, Jesus Christ was open to all forms of human temptation, excepting those that spring out of lust or corruption of nature. But his peccability, or the possibility of being overcome by these temptations, would depend upon the amount of voluntary resistance which he was able to bring to bear against them. Those temptations were very strong, but if the self-determination of, the holy, of his holy will was stronger than they, then they could not induce him to sin— and he would be impeccable, and yet he plainly was temptable. I love that. That's really eloquently said. I mean, that, that's, beautiful. that's a beautiful summary. But this is why it's important to think these things through. Because the, So the problem with this is, where it leads my mind, is if you say that he was impeccable, that he was able to sin, then we're making the, the fact that God has this kind of volitional will, like it's volunteerism. Like, well, God chose not to sin because in that moment he willed himself not to do it. But then that makes his will arbitrary and all wills arbitrary. So there's a lot on the other side of this that's like super dangerous. So I think we can illustrate this principle that Shed is calling out here, because what he's doing is he's he's making the point that um, that an external desire can be uh, can assail Christ's will. It can assail his um, his natural susceptibility is the phrase he uses. But if Christ if Christ's will or his voluntary capabilities, which voluntus is just the, the Latin word for will. So it's just talking about his will. If his will to not sin is greater than the uh, the temptation that's assailing him, then there's no way he could not sin. And so we're not saying that his will was not attackable. 
But right. we're not actually all that different, right? Because when I'm a, when I'm attacked by a temptation, um, that temptation, if my will is stronger than that temptation, then I succeed in not sinning. And so all we're saying in, when we say that Christ is impeccable is that his will was indefeatable. Yes. His will was always able to overcome temptation necessarily because it is an, an, an uh, invincible will. And the, the sort of uh, hackneyed, jerry-rigged uh, analogy we can use would be if, um, you know, let's say that Jesse loves pizza. And I know that Jesse loves pizza. I do love so pizza. So let's say Jesse loves pizza. And I, I hold a piece of pizza in front of him, and it's just the best-looking pizza. It's amazing. It's pepperoni. It's got its white sauce. It's, you know, lots of good cheese. Every I can see Jesse's mouth just drooling right now. <laughs> and I hold that in front of him, and I say, Jesse, you can have this pizza. And as soon as he reaches for it, I snatch it away. Now, Jesse's will, Jesse's desire was to eat that pizza. And he was tempted by that pizza, but because I'm faster than Jesse is, I don't know if I'm actually faster than Jesse is, but because in this scenario, I'm faster than Jesse, he was unable to actually eat this pizza. And so even though he was tempted, there was no possibility of him actually eating the pizza. So in this scenario, when we apply this to Christ, there are things that are in front of him, things that are desirous that he could want, but his divine will overpowers that the same way that my speed overpowers Jesse's ability to eat the pizza. Christ's human will, his desire to uh, to follow the, the Father, it overpowers the desire to commit whatever sin is in front of him. And to even say that he has a desire is in itself not correct because the desire to sin is also a function of the will. That's also a function of susceptibility, which his his will overcomes at every moment. So there's some irony there because where you have Dr. Sproul trying to protect the relatability of Christ with our humanity, actually what we what we want in life and what God actually gives us is the second Adam who has that kind of will. That's, that's really what we want. Exactly. So that gets taken away from us, actually, if we start to separate and parse out the humanity and the deity of Christ and say, well, he was able to sin. You know, it strikes me too that another argument or evidence for impeccability is the immutability of Christ. Yep. So I, it floors me that he, in Hebrews 13, 8, the author says, Jesus Christ, not, not God, especially that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a verse that is quick on our lips often when we're thinking about our changing times or things that we're going through. And because he was not susceptible to any change, it would therefore be impossible for the incarnate son of God to sin. Because like you said earlier, creaturehood and mutability are correlated always. So sinless angels fell, sinless Adam fell because they were only creatures, but Jesus was created. So in Isaiah 9, for unto us, a child is born for sure, but he was never placed on probation. He never had a separate existence. And that's why the verse ends, to us a son is given. The child is born, but the son always existed, and he was given at that time. So from the very first moment of his conception in the virgin's womb, the humanity of Christ was taken into union with his deity, and therefore he could not sin. There's always existed in consummate harmony. And kind of going, circling back to what you said at the beginning in the, the, when we started talking, that is something that we need to kind of continue to rest on. That we, that's why Christ is unique and different from us. And that's why he, he must be impeccable for that very reason. So I want to turn the corner and sort of talk a little bit about some of the, um, maybe we'll say some of the 
errant thinking that underlies the impact, the peckability position, and then also some of the consequences that come about because of the peckability um, thesis, we might call it. Yeah, let's do it. But before we do that, I just want to say one last time how awesome the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible is. I agree with you. I'm glad that you brought this up. The new NIV Biblical Theological Study Bible is a great work. It's has the general editor is D.A. Carson, and it's really the only study Bible that's built on this kind of large-scale unification of the narrative of the story of redemption in the scriptures. So it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, as we've mentioned many times now, um, D.A. Carson led a, a team of scholars, of over 60 scholars. There's 20,000 study notes. There's 28 full-length articles. There's full-color pictures. I mean, there's there's so many great features of this that it's it almost gets tiresome trying to say all of them. Um, but it, it's just, it's a great resource. Um, this is the last week that we're going to be talking about it at length. Um, we're having a contest that we're going to run through the remainder of October. Uh, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest um, and enter to win one of six of the leather-covered uh, copies. Um, and it's just a great resource that we really want people to get in their hands. So if you're interested, and you should be, because we've been talking about it for a long time, and it is awesome, you can visit whatisbiblicaltheology.com, where you can take a look at three of those 28 articles that are included there and get a little sense for just how pretty it is. It's really, in Tony's words, a very handsome Bible. It is. It is a very handsome Bible. <laughs> I love that. I call all my books handsome now because of our conversation. We really appreciate Zondervan uh, offering us this opportunity to promote this product, and we really believe in it. It's really a great resource. So make sure you check it out. What is biblicaltheology.com? Check it out. So Jesse, if you were to say uh, kind of like the number one negative consequence of impeccability, um, what would you say it is? Can I just, to cheat, can I just name a heresy? Sure. Historianism. Yeah. Yeah. And that's absolutely <laughs> that's right. That's like everything. Yeah. And so that's how I the, cheated. the the bottom line of this is, um, and I, I don't say this to be inflammatory or crass, but you cannot hold an Orthodox Christology uh, consistently and maintain the packability of Christ. Right. So with all due respect to Dr. Sproul and other Reformed theologians and other non-Reformed theologians who disagree, uh, and it's not irrational that they disagree. I understand why they hold a different position. Right. But you just cannot do it. The, the logic does not work. And here's why. Is the orthodox understanding of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, is that the eternal Logos, who is God, fully God, the fullness of God, um, takes on a second nature. And this actually does, this actually ties into the EFS controversy a little bit. So maybe in another episode, we'll link this up a little bit, but it's important to note that the church, since it figured this stuff out, has always affirmed that will is a function of nature. And so there's a single divine will because there's a single divine nature. And when Christ takes on a, a second nature, a human nature, he takes on a human will. But the key is that although the, the will comes from the nature, the will is only exercised to do anything that they do not will to do. Are you tracking with me? I'm with you. So in, in postulating that the human nature may be able to sin apart from the divine nature, which is what, uh, what R.C. Sproul and others basically say, what you're actually postulating is that there is an, an agency that could will 
apart from the agency of the divine, the divine nature. Right. And so rather than have two natures who, uh, that subsist in a single willing agent, um, two wills subsisting in a willing agent, you have two wills subsisting in two willing agents, which is two persons that are fused together instead of one person who has two wills and two natures. Right. And that goes back once again to in Jesus is united that human and divine nature in consummate harmony. And again, what what you're saying, those who genuinely hold this position oftentimes are not trying to be in opposition to what we're saying. I think oftentimes we just don't realize that we actually end up in opposition to orthodoxy when we start to try to separate them out so as to make sure that Christ is identifiable with us. That's always a problem. We should actually always err more on the side of making sure that we're preserving the unification of that human and divine nature. And the will is, I think, sometimes that bridge that we need to make sure it remains intact, helps us to make sure they're consolidated, separate, but not separated, so to speak. Right. And so what happens is, um, and I'm just going to pull that R.C. Sproul quote back up to kind of um, elucidate this a little bit, is it says here, and this is where I think it, um, this is where I think R.C. Sproul's Christology goes the farthest off the rails, um, is when he's trying to take the intersection of the work of redemption with his Christology, he ends up saying some very squirrely things. And so here he says, this position protects the integrity of the authenticity of the human nature because it was the human nature that carried out the mission of the second Adam on our behalf. And so although when he was pressed to clarify these kinds of statements, um, he clarified by appealing to the Chalcedonian definition and explaining that he, you know, he speaks in orthodox ways when he's forced to. But but this right here says that the human nature is an agent who carried out our redemption. And, and so right. that's, he's forced to say the divine nature was not an agent that carried out our redemption because it was exclusively the human nature that carried out our redemption. But that, that is not just functionally, but is actually creating two persons in the incarnation. One of whom carries out the the redemption of humanity, one of whom does not. And that's a major problem. And so he's able, because of this, this sort of errant idea of Christology that, that I don't think he was aware of, despite how many times people brought it up to him, I don't think he was really cognizant of this. This errant Christology allows him to say the human nature can sin because the human nature is a distinct agent from the divine nature. Right. And so the the divine nature, or or if we're really just using the way that he speaks of it, we carry the logic out. The divine agency does not override the human agency's ability to sin. But the problem is that in Christ, there is only one agency. So we can't have a human agency and a divine agency. We can have a single agency that acts according to human nature and a single agency that acts according to divine nature, that same that same agency, but we cannot have two distinct agencies. Right. It's actually, I would say, irreverent speculation to discuss what the human nature of Christ might have done if it had been alone. Exactly. Because it was never alone. Right. It never had a separate existence. So from the first moment of its being, it was united to the divine person. Exactly. And again, that's where the mystery comes in. So I don't think the mystery comes in per se in trying to understand how impeccability and temptability can exist in consummate harmony. They do. And they, in fact, they need to. Like for salvation, for redemption, they actually both must be in play here. Exactly. I think where the mystery comes in is trying to understand this unification that was from the beginning of time. That's yeah. what makes our minds do somersaults. But we should be okay and comfortable with, with refuting 
the argument for peccability by, by explaining to people how it was possible for Jesus to be tempted and for him yet to be incapable of sinning. That doesn't make right. the temptation any less real. That's kind of the bottom line. Right. And I think we have this tendency, even well-intentioned, where we go to the scriptures, and even if we're like, I, I get it that Jesus was not a superhero, we still can sometimes think, well, the temptation that he experienced was to some degree, even after 40 days of not eating, he sees the bread and food, he's of a different constitution such that really that temptation was lesser than what I might experience in my complete weakness. Right. And that's just flat out not true. Right. And so the the ultimate answer as to why and how we affirm that Christ was not able to sin is simply that an agent can only act in a way that is consistent with their will. So I can only act in a way that's consistent with my will. And since Christ has two wills, Christ could only act in a way that's consistent with both of his wills. So the, the two wills of Christ were always in harmony. Um, right. Sometimes we look at the Garden of Gethsemane and we think that what's happening there is Christ's human will doesn't want to die and his divine will wants him to die. And so he's he's got this internal struggle. But that's not what's happening. That's a different right. episode. We can talk about that at a different time, but that's not what's happening. Because if if the father was calling him to die and he said, but I don't want to, that's sin. That it's that's sin, and we're all lost because then Christ sinned, and we we've lost our salvation because Christ was not a suitable sacrifice for us. But but what we see is that Christ is always acting in ways that are consistent with both wills, and that means that in order for the hypothetical situation where Christ would have sinned, it would mean that His divine will would have had to be willing contrary to itself, right. which is which is incoherent. The will would have had to will what it willed not to will. I mean, that's it's just not, you can't have that happen. And so the consistency and the integrity of Christ's person and the harmony of his two wills is what, what brings about this impeccability. It's not that his divine nature somehow overrides his human nature, which is kind of what it seems like Sproul thinks is being argued. Um, it's not that his divine will overpowers his human will. It's none of that. It's that his human will was a righteous and holy will that always desired to do the will of the Father. And so that acted consistently to accomplish the will of the Father. And his divine will was the divine will. So it was the sing- same single will as the Father. And so the the single agent of Christ, a single agency that is Christ, could only ever act in a way that was in accord with the divine will. And we know that sin is defined as acting contrary to the divine will. So the idea that Christ could sin is just a logical incoherency if you have this orthodox understanding of Christology. Right on. So I think we should kind of end our conversation by speaking about some of the wonderful benefits practically of Christ's impeccability. Because it's one thing to kind of go through all the argumentation which we've focused on and to get some comfort from the fact that this is logically consistent. But let's kind of wrap up with some of the benefits. And for me, one of the wonderful things about Christ's impeccability is if you think about this world where sin and the disaster it is caused is ubiquitous, it really is refreshing in like the truest sense of the word, really refreshing to fix our gaze on one who is immaculately holy and who passed through this crazy earthly scene unspoiled by its evil. Yeah. So Jesus was in immediate intimate contact with sin, and yet he was never to the slightest degree contaminated. In fact, in the, Old Te- you know, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament scriptures, he touches the leper, and yet he was not defiled, even ceremonially. Right. I mean, there's something about this wonderful power of this immaculate one who is our second Adam. 
um, and, and that one day we will be like him in that sense. So just starting there, I think there's something beautiful about seeing Christ as the one who has power over all and just doesn't, can't get dirty. Yeah. And he's involved in it. He's not separated as it were. He's in the midst yeah. of it. And this almost, in my mind, this almost gives us a picture of what success would have looked like for Adam in the garden. Right on. Right. Because Adam in the garden comes and he has no sin nature. He has no natural inclination to sin, which is why it's a mystery that he actually did sin, but he has no natural inclination to sin. And he's presented with sin and somehow mysteriously, he wills, he wills to sin. The the temptation to sin overcomes his will. We don't know how, we don't know why, but it does. In Christ, the same scenario is presented, right? In, when the devil comes to Jesus in the garden and he says, um, I'll give you everything. I'll give you all of the kingdoms that you see. All you need to do is bow down and worship me. That's the same, that's the same deal that he offered Adam. I mean, it's different words, it's a slightly different situation, but it's the same deal. And that's actually part of yes. the point of the, the temptation narrative. There's a reason it takes place where it does out in the wilderness. Um, but Christ succeeds. So we have this picture of what Adam, not only what Adam should have done, but what would have happened had he completed this. And this ties into our covenant theology, right? Because had, had Adam succeeded, he would have obtained all of the blessings of the covenant of works, and he would have shared all of those blessings with all of his posterity. So what happens? Christ, the second Adam, overcomes the temptation by exercising his righteous will and overcoming that. And so then he obtains all the blessings of the covenant of work and shares that with all of his spiritual offspring. Boom. So we have this beautiful picture that comes forward of what Adam what Adam would have done and what he could have done had he not been overcome. And now the, the peccability crowd can still can still say that. They can still say, well, look, this is this is what would have happened. But the difference is that when we look to Christ, we either look to Christ as someone who could have failed at his mission or someone who couldn't fail at his mission. And I don't know any Reformed people that would say Christ could have failed at his mission. Right. He could have failed to succeed to obtain the salvation of, of his people. Um, that You can't hold limited atonement, for, it, for example. But if Christ could have sinned, even hypothetically, then you're saying he could have failed. Because if he sinned, he failed. So this hedges us against the idea that we have some sort of faulty savior who just kind of got by when it may have gone a different direction. Right. I, that's well said, because I think far from giving us this space in which to be confused about whether or not Christ could or could not fail, I think one of the reasons God ordained that his son should be tempted was to actually demonstrate his impeccability. Exactly. It was to show this vast difference between Satan tempting us and Satan tempting the God man. It's like the difference between, I don't know, like throwing a, a lighted match on an open gas grill, which yeah. would obviously result in an explosion, and throwing a lighted match in a bucket of water. Yep. I mean, we're getting to see this vast difference. So the Lord Jesus was exposed to far more severe testing and trying than the first Adam was in order to make manifest his mighty power of resistance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really beautiful. And, and you know, it, good theology and bad theology are self-reinforcing. And that's True. that's both the beauty of theology and the danger of theology is when you get something right, um, it helps you to get other things right. So getting the peccability or the impeccability, I should say, of Christ right helps you to also understand 
the incarnation, the Trinity, the difference be- between uh, believing will comes from the person versus will coming from the nature, all of these other things that are seemingly unrelated, understanding and exploring this concept of the impeccability of Christ helps to illuminate and helps to clear up these other issues that you may get wrong. Uh, on the flip side, getting it wrong forces you into these errors in other areas in order to accommodate it. So if your if your primary concern, as it seemed to be in Sproul's article that I quoted, is to guard what you consider to be the genuine humanity of Christ, which involves some necessity of ability to sin, then you are forced to make mistakes in your other areas. So getting this right is a good guard against other things. You know, we've talked right. about kind of developing this sort of like theological spider sense where you you understand what's right so much that the, the wrong stuff just sort of makes you feel uneasy and you don't always know why. This is one of those things. And I think that's a huge benefit of getting this right. It is. And there's also a really strong devotional sense to this because Christ was not only able to overcome temptation, but he was unable to be overcome by it. And there's a big difference between those two, devotionally speaking. Because what we're basically saying is because Jesus has absolute power over sin, the feeble, sorely tired saint can turn to him with implicit confidence, seeking his efficacious aid. Only he who triumphed over sin, both in life and death, can save me from my sins. Exactly. And so when we pull that away, we may think that we're being helpful, but in the final analysis, what we find is a savior that really is nothing but somebody made in our image. And I do, I cannot be saved by somebody who is just like me. It would be absolutely impossible. So I love that we can think about these things and then move away from them and just kind of erupt into doxology because this makes me want to praise Jesus all the more because we have one who is the full conqueror, the one who there was still, like you said, speaking about volition and will, desired to be the mediator for us. And then when he was tempted, did not give in. And of course, only the one who experiences the full breadth and scope of temptation does not succumb to it is really the one that understands it the best. So to speak about the Hebrew style mediator, the great high priest who understands us, the only one that can actually understand our temptation is the one who never gave into it. Because... That's the only one who has seen it in all of its ugliness and has yeah. been able to say, I overcame it, and so will you by the, by my power through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one last thought before we wrap up um, and in terms of this sort of devotional utility of this doctrine. Something we didn't talk about is the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. Because, you know, when we pray to the Holy Spirit um, or we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit— and we ask God to uh, lead us not in temptation, right? We pray the Lord's right. Prayer, and we say, lead us not into temptation. And if we don't believe that the Holy Spirit, who anointed the Son beyond measure, right? The Son was the one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit beyond measure, who existed in such close unity with the Holy Spirit, that in some places in the in the Scripture— um, the Spirit and the, the Son are spoken of in singular terms. If we don't really believe that the Holy Spirit could protect the Christ from sinning, right? then how can we possibly believe that he could protect us from sinning when we don't even have the benefit of not having a sin nature? Exactly. So, so devotionally speaking, this is one of those things that if we want to be consistent in our prayers and we want to ask God to protect us from sin and to give us the strength to not sin— then we have to believe that he's able to do it. And if he's able to do it, then uh, the idea that he wouldn't do it 
even hypothetically for his own son, is is just impious blasphemy. And I mean, I say that in the strongest terms because it, it's it it is to say that the father would not the father hypothetically would have not protected his son from sin, or that the Holy Spirit hypothetically was not able to protect his son uh, the son from sin. It's just blasphemy. There's mm. there's no two ways around it. Testify. So I, I just want our listeners to to think about this. And if you're if you're someone who's not quite sold on this, then then don't feel bad. Um, this, like I said, this is a sticking point. It was a sticking point for me for a very long time. Um, I know people who this just was natural to them, but it was not for me. It took me a long time to get my head around it. So if you want to, you can give us a call, ask follow-up questions. We would love to address them on our next question cast um, or send us an email if you'd rather have this be a little more private. But this is a big deal doctrine that we really want to make sure people understand and that they get. For sure. And there's beauty in weighing all this out because that's where so, so many times our growth comes from is really wrestling with these issues. Talk about it with somebody that you love and value. Have some good conversation with somebody else in your sphere of influence or in your church. Talk to an elder, pull your pastor aside and say, I was listening to these two crazy guys and they were talking about (laughs) impeccability. What is the deal with that? How do you understand it? What does it mean? This is all part of the Christian life. It's getting together and having these conversations and really enjoying sifting through all of this great knowledge that God has given for us to weigh out and coming to some kind of biblical conclusion, passing everything through the sieve of Scripture and looking at what does the Scripture itself have to say about who Jesus is. Like, we're never, I love the quote, I think it's from, it might be Owen. It might not be Owen. It's a Puritan, because they're awesome. But like, we're never closer to God than when we're loving Jesus, because God loves his son so much. So this, I think, is just one of the ways when we love someone, we want to know everything about them, not just by way of gathering more knowledge, but that pulling us into deeper intimacy. And I think the idea of impeccability and this doctrine in particular is one way where we can really kind of lean in closely to understanding a little bit more about Christ. And I like how you kind of conclude that, Tony, like don't take the power away. Don't take the power away. So really embrace all that Christ has given us. Every spiritual blessing is literally there for us. He's not just as as he were taken our debt and paid it off. He's filled up our checking account, so to speak, with every spiritual currency that we could ask for and more. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to end the episode. So, Jesse, if someone wants to give us a call, what's that phone number? You can call us at 607-444-2767. Bros. That was my phone number voice. It actually just happened. I didn't even mean for that to go into some kind of... That wasn't a volitional choice. It just Interesting. I guess that's just how I read the phone number now. I guess it is. Let's try to change that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. And we haven't mentioned it in a while, but if you want to get some sweet Reformed Brotherhood gear, uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, Jesse, but we have girls t-shirts now. Really? We do, yeah. T-shirts for the ladies. I know. And I heard a rumor. It's just a rumor. But since I'm the one that started the rumor, um, we may be getting hooded sweatshirts. Oh. Rootedapparels.com. And uh, you can go there and check out all of our sweet Reform Brotherhood gear. And we get a small kickback, but don't do not do it because you're giving us money. Do it because you want a cool t-shirt. Um, they're just really sweet. I've already worn mine out and I need to buy a new one. Yeah, they're super comfortable. Yeah, they really are. Like This is not your average. It's not like one of those scratchy, thick. It's really nice. It's light. It's soft. Yeah, yeah it's good stuff. It's handsome. All right. Well, that should just about do it. <laughs> We're having microphone issues. It's terrible. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. (laughs) 
Oh, the joy of podcasting. On that sour note, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?